Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. I am Rick Thomas at lifeovercoffee.com. By the way, that's where you will find me in my coffee shop. I spend my day there interacting with people, building resources, and trying to create content that will uh, motivate you to have conversations for transformation. So again, thank you so much for joining me. Did you know that you need more than preaching if you want to change? Isn't that a great way to begin a, a little talk? That you need more than preaching. I mean, if, if your goal is transformation, like I, I want to change, and so how do I change? How does transformation happen in my life, in your life? Well, if you really want to experience transformation, then you are going to have to experience more than just the preaching of God's Word. Now, that's probably going to sound like an unknown tongue to some folks, and I'm, I'm going to build a case uh, that it's true, that what I'm saying here, that you need more than preaching if you want to change. You see, the preaching event on Sunday morning and the working out of the preaching event, the preached word during the week, are not either-or activities. There is a symmetry here in hearing the preached word and the application of the preached word. And if you don't live in that symmetry, then you will walk awkwardly. You will have internal disorderedness of your soul. You will have relational challenges in your life. You will come into situational difficulties that you will not know how to extricate yourself from or to have peace while in them. I have experienced this in my own life. By living by God's word alone, being preached, is not enough. And I've seen that in so many counselees. In fact, I would say that that is the majority report. That when a counselee comes to me and you start asking them questions, how are you applying God's word to your life on a daily and weekly basis? How are you engaging other people uh, with God's word and how are they engaging you? What are the contexts that you have for the application of God's word in your life? If your church provides small group, shepherding group, home group, whatever we call these uh, groups, are you participating in them? Or are you creating a context where you're engaging people? Like, Are you part of the men's ministry, the ladies' ministry? Are you part of the, the youth ministry? Are you serving? Are you serving in nurse, nursery? You're serving uh, in uh, student ministries? Are, do you have your own ministry at the local church where you are helping other people? Are people speaking into your life? There are many ways to do this, but this is one thing that I know that's true, that in my counseling career, people, generally speaking, who are in trouble are not actively engaging their local church in a reciprocality to where they are being a blessing to others by being intentionally intrusive in their lives and people being intentionally intrusive in the life of the counselee that I'm talking to at any given moment. You see, the preaching of the Word and the application of the Word in all of these various contexts, they work together in that beautiful symmetry to help the Christian to mature. The Christian life is not centered on the pulpit. It just is not because the Christian, guess what? He lives his life chiefly everywhere else after the building door closes on Sunday. The person living by the preached word on Sunday alone, but not implementing context to work it into their soul, guess what? 
they will not mature the way that God intends or the way the Bible teaches. There are 168 hours in our week. The preaching event is less than a one-hour soundbite out of each week. Now, let's say that you hear more than one sermon a week. Maybe you attend Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and you hear three messages a week. Maybe you listen to your pastor on Sunday morning, and that's the only a message that comes from your local church. That's fine. A lot of people do that. And then you listen to another sermon or two every week online. Well, if you listen to three sermons a week, that leaves 165 hours to apply those sermons to our lives. It's our life outside the church building that makes our communities the practical epicenter of our Christianity. The epicenter of our Christianity, I mean, the, the physical epicenter, is where we live, primarily. And that is in our homes, probably, that is the familial context, is probably the place where we have the most opportunity to apply the preached word in our lives. And then there is the workplace. We can spend 40 or, or 50. For me, it's, a, it's north of that. Every week in the workplace. And then it's in our schools and other uh, milieus where we interact with other people and they engage us. These communities outside the preached word or outside the pulpit is where transformation is going to happen if we are intentional about using these milieus in such a way that will bring transformation to us and also to others. Preaching has a prominent place in our lives. And so I don't want you to hear that I am downgrading preaching. Actually, I'm not. I will continue to elevate preaching. I will always have a high view of preaching till the day I die and as I roll into eternity. What I'm doing is not downgrading anything. Actually, I'm elevating. I am elevating the practical application of the preached word. That is the part that I'm elevating. By the way, it is the heart of our ministry. The heart of our ministry is an application ministry. And many of you know why it is. Because I stood in front of a preacher many years ago, probably around 1989, when I was struggling with the most significant crisis in my life. And the church did not help me, and I asked the church. <laughs> I said, why? That's the short way that I asked. And the preacher, the pastor said of a 1,200-member church, he said, we don't know what to do with a person like you. And as I've said many times, I appreciated his integrity. I appreciated his honesty. I appreciated his vulnerability. I appreciated his courage to be able to speak the truth. Uh, he did not try to hide anything or shuffle off. He, he just spoke it directly that we do not know what to do. And this is a church that it, it just... It is known for uh, being a preaching center, but there was a glaring weakness that they were—they did not know how to bring practical application to many people's lives, especially when someone like me showed up with a problem that was outside of their categories. And it was that moment when God just really worked in my heart because the truth is I was just like him. I had no clue how to help a person like me, and so how can I judge him when I could not help myself? 
but that propelled me to figure out how to overcome the challenges that I was in. And not only that, but to go and to receive the training that was necessary to dedicate my life to helping people apply God's Word in their lives. Now, we have a high view of theology a high view of the preached word, but we also are very much aware that if we are not applying the theology, it will puff us up. If we are not applying the preaching, then, well, we will not live much differently from the rest of the world. And so I have a high view of preaching, and so what I'm I'm elevating here is that we have to make sure it's not an either-or context. There is a symmetry And I am punctuating the necessity of making sure that we are application centers that are proportionate to being preaching centers as well. And so preaching has a prominent place in our lives, but it is only supplemental prominence when talking about the transformation process. The New Testament does not make preaching the central focus of progressive sanctification. Uh, if you think so, well, you're just wrong. <laughs> you are just wrong. The New Testament doesn't make preaching the central focus of progressive sanctification. Now think about this. What we talk about like all the time is, did you hear this preacher? Here's this preacher's quote that I'm going to put on socials. I heard this sermon. I want you to hear this sermon. Great, fantastic. But the New Testament doesn't make preaching the central focus of progressive sanctification. The gospel has that role in our lives. The central focus in our lives is the gospel, or to be more specific, Jesus Christ has a prominent and preeminent role in our lives, and preaching is one way to bring the gospel in view. I am not antagonistic toward preaching. I am antagonistic toward not having symmetry. The epicenter of our Christianity is a cross. It is a tomb. It is a resurrected life. Preaching is one instrument to help us to see, to experience, and to understand the gospel, the centrality of Christ. Preaching is a humongous tool, but one of many. Moses seemed to understand the balance between sound preaching and sound application when he taught the children of Israel how to parent. He gave them the word of God and then he exhorted them with practical instruction on how to take this glorious word to their homes so that they could apply it in their lives. I want to share that passage with you that all of you know. Many of you have memorized it. It is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. I will give it to you in halves. The first half is is the exaltation and, and just sound preaching. The second half is like, okay, now I want you to take this and I want you to apply it. Here's the passage. O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I, have, that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now there's excellent exhortation, fantastic preaching, the exaltation of Christ to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Preaching. 
Now, here's his private application as we look at the bottom half of this passage in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. He continues, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Not only that, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and your gates. He wanted to make sure that they understood that the Lord our God is one God, and he, he, made, he was wanting to make sure that they create these milieus, these environments in their lives. Because once they walk away from that great preaching that he just gave them, he was not sure that they would take it and apply it practically, and so he gave them a way to think about it and exhorted them to make sure, and he just seemed to be redundant to punctuate his point that if you do not apply this, then, well, it's going to move past the curve of forgetfulness, and it will drop off as you keep scrolling through your parchments and, and looking at all these social media websites. Jesus' primary discipleship method took place in the context of people's lives where they lived. Uh, in fact, he is it's kind of imitating what Moses is saying. Uh, Jesus would be out on the countryside, and he would be sharing God's Word. He didn't disciple at the same place daily, where he was sitting, where he was sleeping, where he was walking, when he would rise and when he was discipling people, it was not primarily a monologue. Jesus took his discipleship outdoors, and he used those contexts to draw out his disciples. Sometimes, I mean, when he discipled, he would use the physical world. You know this. He'd talk about birds and flowers and camels and nard. As a matter of fact, if you were to read Matthew 6, Part of the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse number 25, when he's teaching about anxiousness, and he goes down through verse 37, you see some of these physical illustrations as he is discipling. He was an outstanding preacher communicating God's Word, and he would use the physical world like birds, flowers, camels, nard to illustrate the spiritual world. He was always moving from the physical, the concrete, to the spiritual, to the abstract. And in that spiritual world, he was talking about provision and sovereignty, anxiousness, worship, service, humility. There is a classic illustration of this as he went from the physical concrete to the spiritual. And that is Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. I'll not read all of that here for you. Most of you know it well, but I would encourage you to see how he taught God's Word on the hillside. He says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, and what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and your, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And so he continues on through this wonderful text. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like any one of these. And so he continued to teach about anxiousness and about seeking the kingdom of God first and all these things that you uh, desire and all these things that you're anxious about, they will, they will be added to you. That's Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. Jesus 
Jesus was an outstanding teacher. He knew how to communicate God's Word in monologue, and he knew how to apply it practically. Jesus was so in tune with his world, with his audience, that he never missed an opportunity to teach them God's practical and relevant ways. And that's what we want to make sure that we are doing as we take the preached word, as we listen to Jesus preach on a hillside. Uh, we want to then now go out and apply it practically within our spheres of influence. Jesus would do this through interpersonal interaction with his community. Sometimes he would teach them through a stand-up monologue like what he was doing at the Sermon on the Mount. And then later he would practically work out his teaching lesson through interaction and two-way dialogue. Let me give you an illustration of where Jesus would preach the Word and apply the Word. It's almost like he was listening uh, or he was following Moses's template for preaching the Word and then turning around and working it into the psyche of those who are willing to hear it. This is Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. I would encourage you to tag this. If you're driving down the road now or running along the beach, just mentally tag this passage. Again, it is it is Mark chapter uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And I'm, I'm going to divide this passage up the same way that I divided Deuteronomy 6 because I want you to see the symmetry here. Yeah, Jesus is a great preacher, like you heard in part on the Sermon on the Mount, but he also is a great applicator of the Word too. And so his public preaching in Mark chapter 4, and again he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and he sat on the sea and the whole crowd and beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and in teaching. And he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And so he continues on uh, in his preaching, sitting in a boat, pushed out into the sea. And then in this same passage in Mark 4. 1 through 13. Here's the symmetry, the same symmetry that Moses had in Deuteronomy 6. The text continues to say, And when he was alone, now he's not on a boat, he's not out in the sea, he's not at a pulpit, he's not preaching to a large crowd. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve, the twelve plus, they asked him about the parables that he just got through preaching. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And it continues on through verse 13. And that is how Jesus would preach and that is how he would apply, and you see that throughout the four Gospels. So in verses 1 through 9, Jesus was teaching to a massive crowd from the pulpit, so to speak. And then in verses 10 through 13, he begins to unpack the teaching lesson in a personal, customized, relevant, and practical way for his community. Here's my point. The pulpit is a great place to exalt the Savior, to expound the gospel, to call people to live in holiness. To be sure, God-ordained preaching for the proclamation of the Word is critical and prominent in our lives. It is the foolishness of preaching that confounds the wise and empowers the faithful. But, and, in addition to great preaching, 
You also find in Scripture that it is in the living rooms of the community where the truths preached from the pulpit works out in the context of our lives. You can encourage someone repeatedly from the pulpit to serve. And the hearer may understand, they may personalize, they may apply what you are saying. If you tell them to wash another person's feet, that's like, that is a great tip. That is what I want to do. But imagine this. If you bring a towel and basin to his living room and you wash your friend's feet, you can be assured that he will never forget that one act of other-centered serving. And you see that in John 13, 15. You see that in Matthew 26, 13. It is one thing to preach from the pulpit that we should wash one another's feet. It is a wholly other thing when you do it in their living room. By the way, this happened to me. In 1989, I was sitting in a small apartment in Queens, New York. We had been tracking the subways uh, for several days, passing out Bible tracts, and we were absolutely exhausted. We were so tired. It was hard work. And I was a young man at the time. We were sitting in this small apartment in Queens, and Hector Enriquez, a, a friend then and now, he went into a room and he came out and he had a bowl of water in his hand and he had a towel over his shoulder. And there were like eight or nine of us in this small apartment. And that living room was so small, our knees almost touched each other. That in itself was humbling enough with how they live there in Queens and, and were so had so much affection for Christ. But Hector came into that living room, and he got down in front of me first, and he began to untie my shoes. And as he was untying my, my smelly shoes and taking off my socks, I did not ask him to do this. And I didn't have a category for this, and so I didn't know to tell him to stop, and kind of didn't want to, but kind of did. He took off my socks, and he put my feet in the, the basin of water, and he began to wash my feet. As he was washing my feet, he was praying, and he was crying, and he was thanking God for these men of God who came to Queens, New York. It was humiliating. And he uh, dried off my feet, and then he went to the next person uh, to my left, and then he went all the way around the room. Now, it is one thing to preach that you should wash your brother's feet. Now, I'm not making a case for feet washing here. That's not my point. But I am making a I'm making a case for the distinction between preaching something theoretically from the pulpit and then applying it in somebody's living room as you're on your knees crying in front of them. You will remember that forever. Helping others is where Jesus excelled. He contextualized his preached word in the community of the believers. He did not let the preached word stand alone. He modeled his message to drive home his points. And now I want to give you an illustration of all that I've been saying. Mabel has heard wonderful preaching over the past 16 years of her life. Nearly every Sunday she has been encouraged, she has been enlightened, she has been envisioned how to be a woman of God. Recently, a growing bitterness took root in her soul toward her church, toward her pastor, and toward some of her friends. The more she hears the beautiful truths from the word declared from the pulpit, the more cynical and suspicious she becomes. She's seeing the discontinuity between the preached word on Sunday and her marriage and family during the week. 
The dots are not practically connecting for her. Sadly, her cynicism and suspicion are directed toward God, though she would never say that that way. She hoped for a different life, and she believed it would come by going to church. And I put that in air quotes because that is what people say so often. And that is part of the problem, going to church, as though the church is the solution to our problems. And so she believed that she would have a different kind of life by going to church, as she put it to me. Her belief regarding the church is why she committed herself to God and the meetings of the church. She even took on a ministry in the church to help in whatever way that she could. Her faith, her practice were genuine. Mabel loves God. That's not the issue. But like a person asleep in a boat only to awake hours later to find they drifted beyond the buoys, Mabel's marriage has seemingly slipped past the point of no return. All the while, she is faithfully committed to her local church. Listen to what I am saying. She is genuine in her faith and practice. She is committed to her local church. She serves in ministries in her local church. She gladly receives the preached word. You see, Mabel is not struggling with sound doctrine. She does not have a theological problem regarding her understanding of the Bible. What she has is a methodological problem. Building a knowledge base through learning and growing in theological understanding is half the equation. Mabel is getting good information on Sunday morning. It is consistently biblical, easy to understand, and well delivered. Her problem, her need, is the other half of the solution. Her church has not provided or trained her to take the good word preached and work it out in the milieu, in the environments, in the context of her life. She needs a way to ensure clear and practical application. The Lord did not design the Sunday church meeting to fulfill that part of what she must have. have. Mabel is half full. She knows the word. But she does not have the equipping to apply it practically in ways that matter to her life, to her marriage, and other relationships. If she continues this way, she will run on empty before long. I have titled this, You Need More Than Preaching If You Want to Change. And so I have given you preaching, so to speak. I have given you a taught lesson. Now, I want to give you an opportunity to apply it to your life. And so I have some questions here that will serve a person like Mabel as she thinks through biblical solutions regarding comprehensive discipleship in a context of a local church community. As you reflect on what I've shared with you, will you consider using these questions as a template for your thoughts? Ask these questions about your church with all humility, with all charity, please, with all humility and all charity. Discuss them among a few friends, one friend, maybe two friends. I've designed these questions to bring clarity to your life and also to your church community. They will challenge you to think through your motives for being part of your local church. I am here because of the preaching. Why do you attend your church? Because of the preaching. Well, great, fantastic. But what are your reasons for attending each week? I mean, are you practically applying 
the reason you're going to church is because of great preaching. Are you applying the preached word practically? So here's a few questions that I trust that will encourage, motivate, and this, again, is the heart of why we do what we do, because I know in so many of our lives the application of God's Word is weak. Question number one, is your church practically walking out a relational model of gospel-centered living versus a functional model that keeps you busy but doesn't build relationally? I am asking, is your church relationally centered or ministry centered? Sometimes local churches can be so ministry centered that people are busy. They are accomplishing a lot of things. They're feeding half of Africa with rice, but they are not relationally centered. As you see, as their marriages and relationships continue to flame out. Number two. As you move from the pulpit to the periphery of the church, do all the lives of the church people model gospel-centered living? That question is a little bit too strong. Not all the lives, but do the majority of the lives of the church people model gospel-centered living? Are they being transformed in measurable and objective ways? Now, I am talking about those who have been there more than a minute. I'm not talking about the transient crowd, the transfer growth that comes in from another church because they left for whatever reason, or even the new convert. But I'm talking about people that have been there for six months or six years. Are they being transformed measurably, objectively? Number three, is there an intentional plan implemented for disciple-making? Is it producing and reproducing disciple-makers? If we do not have a plan, an intentional plan, for doing discipleship. And if we are not reproducing, then uh, we are failing on the Great Commission. Number four, is there intentional biblical care and accountability taking place in individual lives? Number five, are the men of the church leading their families? The majority. Is this the majority report? Those who are committed to the local church. And how do you know? Number six, is the faith of the church families exportable? Meaning they can export how they are living to the next generation. Now, one of the ways to assess this is by talking to the church's teens, some of the teens. If the parents are being discipled well and responding to that discipleship, it will manifest in many, not all, but it will be manifest in many of the parents' children. The exportability of the gospel, and if the families, if the parents are being discipled well and they are committed to the discipleship process, the majority of them, not all, uh, it will be exported to their children. I, I know that a passion for Christ and that being born again, both of those uh, are, are not things that we can insert, that we can shoehorn into our children's lives. And so I understand that. And, and, and so listen to this question with carefulness and humility, and, and do not self-punish yourself if your children are not walking with God. But I'm saying that majority will report, because the gospel is exportable. And if, if there are discipleship intentionality in the local church and families are committed to that, then the majority report of their children will be the recipients of the exportability of the gospel. Number seven, do you experience biblical fellowship with a few fellow members? Biblical fellowship is, is sharing personally, intimately, practically what God is doing in your life. Are you experiencing that kind of fellowship? Number eight, there's only nine. 
Number eight, suppose you have a relational problem or situational difficulty. Are you comfortable and confident that you can go to your church leadership to describe your problem and receive competent care to walk you through it? This is what I did uh, in 1989. I went to the church leadership because I thought they could help me, and of course they could not. But are you, are you comfortable and are you confident that you can go to your church leadership to receive help? That they will not only understand the problem, but they will give you that competent help. Or do you seek solutions outside the local church because your local church cannot help you? And then finally, number nine, why are you part of your local church? Are you transforming? Are your friends and family members experiencing transformation in proportion to their engagement with the local church? If you want to read what I just shared with you, then go to lifeovercoffee.com. The title of it is, You Need More Than Preaching If You Want to Change. Now, this is part of a book that I've written for you. It's a free book called Local Church, and you can find it in our store. And I would love for you to get the digital download and share it with 1,000 of your closest friends. By the way, if you're uh, in our store, make sure you get one of our uh, cool stickers here. This says Conversations for Transformation. And of course, this one here says Life Over Coffee. We have a lot more merch in our store, but I want to show you these two stickers because I actually have one here that you may be able to see on my, my lap my laptop. You see it there. Uh, it replaces the Apple uh, logo. And I want you to put it on your computer or where other prominent place uh, so that you can let people know about this wonderful ministry, Life Over Coffee. And so please go to our store. We have this blue one here, Conversations for Transformation. Uh, we have this nice white one that I have on my laptop. I have a blue one also on my other laptop here that's recording for me. Uh, that one as well. And then check out the other merchandise in our store. Uh, so get this article, get that digital download, the local church. It is free. There are other books in our store too that are free as well. So make sure you get all of our books. There's a bunch of them there. Uh, you'll spend the entire year reading all of those books and applying it to your life. And then pick up some merch too. You need more than preaching if you want to change. Thanks so much and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.